There's notes in that bulletin. If you'd like to follow along with the notes, you can do that. You'll need a Bible this morning or a Bible app, something to look up the Scriptures in. We've been studying the book of Psalms for several months now. This is the first Sunday, and it'll be the only Sunday, where we look at two different psalms on the same morning, and as you'll see in just a minute, they're not all that different. So you need to find Psalm 14, and then you also need to find Psalm 53. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, we're going to read both of them in just a minute. Before we do that, let me give you a little bit of background information about each of these psalms. Both of them are attributed to David, and both in the note say that they are written for the choir master, meaning... David is the source of these words and the ideas, and when David wrote these thoughts down, he had in mind corporate worship. The people of God gathered together to sing, to worship together, and they're both addressed to the choir master. You will notice that Psalm 14 has a little note above it, and Psalm 53 has a little note above it, and the note in Psalm 53 is a little bit longer. There's some additional information in 53. And you come across two words. One is mahalath, and the other is maskal. Mahalath refers, we think, to either a musical tune or an instrument. So when he says that this psalm, Psalm 53, is according to the mahalath, maybe he's talking about a tune, sing it to this tune, or maybe he's talking about a specific instrument, you play this instrument as accompaniment for the song. Those are the possibilities. Maskell, most scholars will tell you, means a psalm of instruction. And if you're keeping score and you like to know some of this uh, information, the word mahalath is found in one other psalm, Psalm 88, and the term maskell is found in just about a dozen or so other psalms. And so some of these other psalms reference this tune or this instrument, and then several of them mention uh, the idea of this is a psalm of instruction. Now, I want you to understand a little bit uh, of the relationship between Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Most scholars think Psalm 14 was written first, and Psalm 53 came after it. And there's a couple of reasons that they think that. One is the additional note in Psalm 53, right? There's a note in Psalm 14, but there's a longer note in Psalm 53, and they say this longer note is sort of an explanation of how this new version, this updated version was supposed to be sung and what the purpose of it was supposed to be. You can also look later, you can compare Psalm 14 to 53. You'll notice this when we read it. Psalm 53 uh, references the Lord, in all caps, Yahweh, and it also references God, be the Hebrew word Elohim. When you look at Psalm 14, all of the references are to the Lord. And so there's a difference in how does the psalmist refer to God. In one of the psalms, he calls him Lord, Yahweh, all the way through, and then in the other one, he sort of calls him Lord and God going back and forth. One more difference, you can look at this later and and study this more in depth later, but in Psalm 14, verse 5 and 6, it's like they've been taken out, Psalm 14, and in 53, a new idea has been put in, and it's just one verse that got put back in, or one verse worth of words that got put back in. Other than that, they're almost exactly identical. You'll see it when we read in just a little bit. The one question I can't answer for you is... Why would God, when he's inspiring the Bible, 
the Spirit of God inspiring men to write the Scriptures and to put these books together. Why would he put two chapters in the book of Psalms that are almost completely word for word the same? There's a couple of different theories, and I'll just share them with you. They're just theories. One theory is that Psalm 14 was written by young David, and Psalm 53 was written by old David. And the difference between Psalm 14, 5, and 6, and then the one verse that got added in in Psalm 53, maybe explains a, a circumstance or a situation that David had gone through in his life. And he wrote this first one when he was young, and he wrote the second one when he was older. So that's one possibility. Another suggestion that a lot of scholars point to is that David didn't actually write Psalm 53. It's attributed to him because most of the words come from Psalm 14, which he wrote. But some people say, I think Hezekiah wrote Psalm 53. And he took David's words in Psalm 14 and he reworked it just a little bit. And then he wrote Psalm 53 and he changed a little bit of the circumstance. And some scholars think it fits perfectly where King Hezekiah or maybe even King Jehoshaphat won this great military victory. You think about Jehoshaphat beating the armies of Moab or you think about Hezekiah facing off against the armies of of Assyria. And some of these scholars say one of these other later kings sort of reworked it and they just said it's according to David. David wrote it because he had the original idea and some of the original words. That's about as close as we can get to why are there two Psalms that are so close, so similar in the scriptures. Here's a few things we do know. Psalm 14 and 53 do not fit the typical pattern or the typical formula for Psalms of lament or Psalms of wisdom. And really, really smart guys who study Hebrew and know all sorts of things about Hebrew poetry say, look, there's all sorts of psalms of lament in the book of Psalms, and they follow a pretty standard order. They have this part, then this part, then this part, and these psalms are similar, but they don't line up. And they'll tell you the same thing with the psalm of wisdom. They'll say, look, a psalm of wisdom, it has this and this and this and this, and these psalms are close, but they don't exactly line up perfectly. And what a lot of these scholars tell you is these two psalms are in a class all by themselves. They just don't fit with anything else, but they do fit together. And you also need to know this, as they go together, they're also quoted in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. And the fact that they're quoted in the New Testament helps us make sense of the meaning. This is obvious, right? We believe the same Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so if the words that he inspired in the Old Testament get picked up and dropped down in the New Testament, we understand the meaning in both of those places has to be essentially the same. The big idea in both of those places has to be driving in the same direction, and that's certainly true when you look at these three passages, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3, which we're going to read some this morning. So with all of that said, I want us to read Psalm 14, we'll flip over and read 53, and then we'll jump in. So this is the Word of God in Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart... There is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are, in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. 
You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Then you can flip over and we'll read Psalm 53. Psalm 53 says, To the choir master, according to the Mahalath, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They're corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to these passages and we see the scriptures essentially repeating themselves. And we see it in the New Testament. You're repeating yourself again. And we understand the importance of what you're trying to say to us. And so this morning we pray for ears to hear the truth. Even though the truth that we find in these passages is difficult, it's countercultural, it's not popular, it's not flattering. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray that you would work in our lives this morning to understand who we are left to ourselves and to have a greater appreciation for the salvation that you've provided through your son. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. So as I just prayed, this is not a flattering passage. It's mostly about us and then a little bit at the end of each one about what God is going to do in response But you got to understand the importance of this. It's not often that the Bible repeats itself, and it does twice in one book, almost word for word, saying the same thing twice. And you get to the New Testament, to one of the central books of Christian theology and doctrine in the whole Bible, the book of Romans, and right there at the foundation of everything that Paul argues in the book of Romans, he comes back to these two chapters in the book of Psalms. What I'm telling you is if you want to understand anything about yourself in this life, if you want to understand anything about Jesus Christ, if you want to have any comprehension of what salvation and grace and mercy and life in Jesus look like, you have to understand what Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are saying about me and about you. So we're going to try to listen this morning. We're going to ask this question, what do these psalms teach us about sin? And I have six answers, and then we'll end with one concluding thought. So here we go. What do these psalms teach us about sin? Number one, it's an undeniable reality for all people. That's what David is telling us in verse 2. In both psalms, both chapters, where he says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Right? He's not saying like God is up there and he's got his binoculars and he's trying to look down. He's got his telescope and he's trying to find you. Where are you at? Is there anybody? It's not like God is actually searching for knowledge he doesn't have. It's a Hebrew idiom saying God knows. 
what's going on down there. He knows the children of, of man. It's similar to when you read in the book of Genesis, right? Chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, and God comes into the garden and he asks a question, and what's the question? Adam, where are you? Well, he knows where he's at, right? But he's relating to Adam in this way. He's trying to draw Adam out. It ought to remind you of Genesis 6. You remember, uh, excuse me, later in Genesis, Genesis 10, Tower of Babel. God comes down to the Tower of Babel to see this tower that they've made. He leaves the heavens and he comes down to see. It's not that he couldn't see it from the heavens. It's not that he didn't know what was going on until he came down. But it's a Hebrew way of telling you God knows exactly what they're doing. He knows exactly where Adam was. He knows exactly what was going on at Babel. And when it says here in verse 2, chapter 14 and 53, that he looks down from heaven, it's telling you he knows. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows all the peoples of the earth. He knows all the hairs of our heads. He knows when the sparrow falls to the ground. There's nothing hidden from his knowledge. He knows and he looks down on these people, and what we read in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 fits with what we read in other places. Look at Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw that our wickedness was great, and that every intention of the thought of our heart was only evil continually. That's true in the Old Testament book of Genesis. It's true in the New Testament when you turn to Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've memorized that verse perhaps. It's one of the first verses we teach our kids in Awana. Why? Because understanding the fact that all people have sinned is just a baseline that you have to start with. If you're going to understand the scriptures, you're going to understand salvation, you're going to understand what God has done for you through Christ. It doesn't matter how bad your neighbor is and how good he or she makes you look by comparison. It doesn't matter how moral or how upright or how noble you try to live. The testimony of scriptures from Genesis 6 to Romans, right here in the middle in the book of Psalms, is that sin is an undeniable reality for all people. God looks down on his people on all people, and no one is found without sin. It's undeniable. Secondly, sin and folly go hand in hand. Sin and foolishness go together. In verse 1, in both Psalms, it starts off saying that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's a variety of Hebrew words that can be translated fool or folly or foolishness. This is the Hebrew word nabal. In English, you would spell it out, N-A-B-A-L, nabal. If you want a picture of what this looks like, you can go back in the Old Testament. You can read 1 Samuel 25. There's a guy, and his name is actually nabal. And he's a fool, a big-time fool. And it's put right there in the Old Testament to say this is an example of what a fool looks like. He lived up to his Name, But the point here in the book of Psalms is that sin and foolishness go together. I can just tell you from a pastoral perspective, I see this all the time. I have spouses come and talk to me. They've 
been having marriage problems or I have parents come and talk to me and they've been having issues with their children or I have people come and talk to me because they're in trouble or whatever. And people say things like, I just don't know why I did that. It was so stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. Sin leads you to that point where you just make terrible decisions, foolish decisions. I have people come and they talk to me and they say, I don't understand why my kid would do this. I don't understand why my spouse would do that. It doesn't make any sense. And that sometimes I just say to them, you're right, it makes no sense at all. Other than the reality that they're pursuing sin more than Jesus and sin and folly go hand in hand all the time. We'd like to think that we can pursue a path of sin in our life and still make good decisions, smart decisions, wise decisions that will be beneficial to the people around us. You won't do it. It doesn't work that way. Sin and folly go hand in hand. And I want you to see what the psalmist, what David is saying about this relationship between sin and folly. Look at verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. That's usually not how we say things. We usually say things with our mouth. Or to use a biblical image from the book of James, with our tongue. David understood that. He knew how vocal cords worked and tongues worked and mouths worked. But he says right here, to make a point, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And that leads directly to the third thing you need to see. Sin results in what we're going to call practical atheism. Practical atheism. Last week we talked about lying atheists and honest atheists. You remember that? We said the lying atheist is the person who says... I believe in God, but they live their life as if they really didn't. They're lying in what they say they believe. The honest atheist is sort of refreshing at times. They just say, I don't believe in God, and they live accordingly. Let's talk about the same thing from a different perspective this morning. You find a a number of people in our society and our culture that would label themselves as an atheist. And if you ask those people, how did you arrive at that conviction, that conclusion, they'd give you a variety of answers. You'd have some of those guys that would say, or gals, you know, I thought about the, uh, the philosophical arguments for and against God, and I wrestled with the problem of evil and suffering in this world, and my only conclusion is to come to the point where I say that there is no God. So you got these people over here, we'll, we'll just call them philosophical atheists, right? They're just reasoning in their mind, and that's the conclusion they come to. Then you got a whole other group of people, we'll call them scientific atheists, They like to pretend that they're super, super objective, but really they start out with a complete and total bias just like you and I do and everyone does. And they look at all the scientific evidence through the the lens of the theory, underline the word theory of evolution, and they say, you know, the only way I can make sense of all this evidence I see is to conclude that there is no God, there can't be a God, no one's proved to me that there's a God, so I'm an atheist. So you got your philosophical atheists over here, you got your scientific atheists over here, and then over here you've got a group of guys, we'll call them ethical atheists or moral atheists. These are the guys that just don't want there to be a God and they're honest about it. Let me show you a quote. This is from a professor at NYU. His name's Thomas Nagel. Smart guy, brilliant guy. He's just honest. I love his honesty. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. And this guy, you know what's funny about this guy? 
he makes fun of the scientific atheists. I mean, he takes them to task and he says, you guys can't prove as much as you think you can prove. You're out of your mind. And he makes fun of the philosophical atheists and he says, your arguments aren't as fancy and as cute and convincing as you think you are. Let's just be honest about it. We don't want there to be a God. Do you know why he says that? Because he says, I don't want any accountability. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to do exactly what I want to do. To that I say, thank you for being honest about it. So you've got all these different kinds of atheists, and then Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 come in like a sucker punch, and they add one more category. The fool who says in his heart, not with his mouth, in his heart, that there is no God. This is the lying atheist we talked about last week. This is the person who plays a good game of religion. They say the right things with their mouth. They would never open their mouth to say that there is no God. But when you look at their life and you examine it closely, you realize their profession of faith in God in no way, shape, or form impacts the way that they live. Not at all. It doesn't change the way they spend their money. It doesn't change the way they treat their spouse. It doesn't change the way they parent their children. It doesn't change the way they work at their job. It doesn't change the way they spend their free time. They're like everyone else in this world in every single way except they profess with their mouth to believe in God. And Psalm 14 and 53 say there's a problem with that because in your heart, what you're really saying is there is no God. Yeah, I'm going to pay lip service to him, but I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, just like Thomas Nagel at NYU. I'm just going to live my life according to my own standards. So we have practical atheism. Here's the crazy part in Psalm 14 and 53. Are you ready for this? Left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, left to ourselves, every last one of us falls into that category. You may say, nope, not me. And all I can tell you is, well, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says you and me. All of us fall into that category. Apart from God's grace, apart from his work in our life, we all fall into this category of practical atheism. Look what the Bible says in Romans 3. This is quoting our passages this morning. As it is written, this is now the third time this is in the Bible to get it through our thick heads because we're really dense. I'm telling you three times, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. And look at this. No one seeks for God. It's in the Bible three times. And you can tell me all day long, well, I've always believed in God. Well, there's never been a time where I didn't believe in God. Well, I've always said, listen, left to yourself, apart from God's grace in your life, that's you and that's me. No one truly seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So there you go. And there's more, as if that wasn't enough. Here's point four. Sin ruins our relationships with others. In verse 4 in each psalm, there's a sort of an interesting phrase. It says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers? He's asking a question. Don't they know anything? These evildoers, the people who eat up my people as they eat bread and they don't call upon the Lord. And you read that on the surface and you say, eat people? 
Is he saying that sin makes you a cannibal, turns you into Hannibal Lecter? That's not at all what he's saying. What he's saying is sin always spills over out of your life as much as you think you can contain it. It always spills over in your life and it affects other people and it ruins your relationships. This idea of eating my people like you eat bread is a Hebrew idiom basically saying it leads you to sin against other people and to treat them the way you shouldn't treat them. It always spills over into our relationships. You see this right from the very beginning, right? In the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're there. Adam's not doing his job as a husband. He's not leading. He's not crushing this snake. And they eat the fruit. Eve goes first, and she hands it to her husband who was with her, and he eats. And God shows up, and he says, where are you guys? He knows exactly where they're at. And he draws them out, and when they stand there face to face, what does Adam do? He takes his wife, and he throws her right underneath the bus. Just, it's Eve's fault. She did it. First fight between a husband and wife in human history. It was the man's fault. He throws her right under the bus. That relationship was never the same, was it, from that moment? Can you imagine two people, husband and wife, standing before God, having to give an account for what they've done, and the husband has the nerve to just look at his wife, doesn't own up to anything, and says, it's all your fault? Ruined that relationship. It was never the same. And God talked about that in Genesis 3 when he talked about the curse and the consequences of what they'd done. So there's going to be conflict. It's never going to be the same as it used to be. Sin always spills over into our relationships and it ruins them. Look, it's not just marriage and it's not just Adam and Eve and a piece of fruit in a garden. It's us today in this church. Look at what James says in James chapter 4. Why do you have quarrels and fights among you? What causes those things? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? Meaning, It's not personality differences. It's not communication problems. Why do you fight with each other at home and at work and at church? Why do you have all this conflict? You. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Our hearts are the problem. Our passions, our desires, our hearts are not centered on the things that they ought to be centered on. In James, typical James fashion, he just backs you into a corner and he says, the problem is you. That's what Psalm 14 and 53 are telling us when they say that these wicked people eat up God's people like they eat bread. It always spills out. Sin always spills out into your relationships with other people. Number five, sin leaves us with a heavy sense of guilt. It's almost a funny verse in both chapters, verse five, where it says that they are in great terror. Especially in chapter 53 where it says they're in great terror where there is none. They have no reason to be afraid. Nothing's happening to them right now, but they have great terror. And I think what David is trying to say to us in these passages is that we all have a sense, deep down, intuitively we know that we're not the kind of people that we should be. We maybe don't deep down have this desire to run straight to God and ask forgiveness. Romans 3, Psalm 14 and 53 are pretty clear about that. But deep down, we just have this sense of, the psalmist calls it, terror or dread or feeling that if I had to give an account for the thoughts of my heart and the words of my mouth and the things that I've done, I'd be in big trouble. It's terror when you think about that. And do you know how we know that all people have it? 
We know all people have it because every society in the history of the world has invented some form of religion or philosophy to deal with that sense of terror. And maybe what people have come up with is I'm going to sacrifice this chicken and sprinkle the blood on the ground. Maybe what people come up with is I'm going to go to a building and I'm going to get down on my knees in that building and I'm going to say certain prayers and do certain things and put enough money in the box that that's going to sort of get rid of that terror or that dread or that guilt that I feel. Maybe it's somebody that looks a lot more sophisticated like Thomas Nagel and they say we're just going to explain it away because we don't want to even think about it. We don't want there to be a God. So we're going to come up with every reason we can to discredit him. Look, it can be very primitive that you see in some places. It can be very religious that you see in some places. It can be very intellectual and very sophisticated. But human beings left to ourselves apart from God's grace, we come up with some way to stuff this guilt and this dread and this terror down so that we don't have to face it and think about it. One last idea is this. Sin makes us unclean before God. Psalm 14, verse 1 and 3 calls us corrupt. Psalm 53, verse 1 and verse 3 calls us corrupt. And that word literally refers to spoiled, rotten food. I know corrupt. The first thing that comes into my mind is politicians. Okay, maybe it's fitting, but... The real idea here in the text is spoiled, rotten, nasty food. It's unclean. You wouldn't eat it. It's disgusting. And the book of Psalms says that's us. That's what sin does to us. It makes us corrupt. Look at how Paul describes it in Romans 3 to go back to the passage we've read several times. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look, you take all those six ideas from Psalm 14 and 53. You add them all together. And then you just, for fun, you take Romans 3 and you pile it on top. And you listen to what it says about me and what it says about you. And the only word that comes to my mind as I thought about it this week is the word hopeless. It's hopeless. If what Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 say about us are true, if Paul is right when he lifts these two Old Testament passages and applies them to us in the New Testament, if David and Paul are on the right track in describing who you are and who I am, we're in a world of trouble. Your situation is hopeless. It makes me think of the prophet Ezekiel. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, but reading the book of Ezekiel is kind of like you feel like you're going to a Grateful Dead concert. There's some really weird stuff happening, and you're not sure that everybody's in their right mind. And one of the craziest things that happens in the book of Ezekiel is a vision that God gives to Ezekiel. And in this vision, Ezekiel finds himself standing in this valley. He's in this valley, and he looks around, and as far as the eye can see, in every direction in between these mountains, there's bones, dry bones. I looked for a picture of this this week. I thought I'll put a picture up of it, and they were either like 
Halloween gore crazy stuff or like the stuff the kids color down in the three-year-old class and neither of them really do it justice. So you just picture a guy, a prophet, he's standing in a valley, everywhere he looks there's bones, human bones, skull bones, femur bones, hand bones, skeletons, bones everywhere. And Ezekiel says they are dry bones. They're not like fresh bones, they're old bones. They've been there a while. They're scattered out on this valley. And he's standing there, this is the vision, and God comes to him. And in the book of Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel son of man. That's how he refers to him. So he says, son of man, can these bones live? To which the obvious answer is no. They are dead, dry, dusty bones. But the prophet has seen some crazy stuff in the book of Ezekiel at this point and in his life as a prophet. And so his answer is not no, they can't live. His answer is, oh Lord, you know. You know if they can live or not. And then the vision gets crazy. Because he's standing there in this valley, all these dry bones, and the Spirit of God starts to blow through this valley like a wind. Comes the Spirit of God rushing through this valley. And Ezekiel says, I'm standing there amidst all these bones, dead silent, except you can hear this wind coming, and all of a sudden I start to hear a rattling sound. A bone rattling with bone. So maybe at first you think, well, that's a powerful wind. It's knocking over some of the bones. No, it's not knocking over the bones. This spirit, the spirit of God blowing through this valley is bringing these bones together. And they're forming into skeletons. And these skeletons are standing up right in front of him. All these dry, dusty bones, now they're standing up as skeletons. And he keeps watching, and the spirit keeps blowing through this valley. And then all of a sudden, uh, flesh starts to grow on them, and tendons connecting the connecting the bones and and sinews and all these things coming together and then skin covers these bodies and then he's standing there with just like a bunch of zombies like these bodies they're not alive but they're just there and the spirit of God breathes life into these bones that then had flesh that then had skin and they're living and he's standing there in the middle of this valley surrounded by a huge army the point is pretty obvious when you read Ezekiel 37 after you've read Ezekiel 36 The point that God is trying to say to his people is, look, left to yourselves, it's hopeless. Hopeless. There is nothing you can do to fix your situation and to make it better. In Ezekiel 36, he says, you have a heart in your chest, but it might as well be a heart of stone. You're dead. You're like a valley of dry, dusty bones. Your hope is clean cut off. It's hopeless. The great thing is, and Ezekiel learned this, and I hope that we can learn it, is God can handle hopeless. The Spirit of God can change hopeless. That's what the Spirit of God did when he raised Jesus from the grave, right? He took that dead body in the grave, and the same Spirit that blew through that valley of dry dry bones blew through Joseph's tomb, and out of death came life. If you're a follower of Jesus today, if you sang the songs we sang earlier and you meant them from the depth of your heart, you acknowledge Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you need to understand the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has raised you from spiritual death. That there was a time when you showed up in this place where you were hopeless, spiritually dead, as dead spiritually as a valley of dry bones, cut off and separated from God. And the Spirit of God worked in your life in such a way, Ezekiel would say, 
that he took out that rocky, stony heart and he gave you a heart of flesh. And he moved you to love him and to keep his commandments and to follow the Lord. You didn't do that to yourself. Vacation Bible School didn't do that to you. Landon Coleman can't do that to you. Brother Bill Cook cannot do that to you. The Spirit of God can do that to people who are spiritually dead. He can give you life. He can take your hopelessness and turn it into hope. And I pray this morning as you look at this picture of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, those of you who know the hope and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, I hope you appreciate it more maybe than you ever have. I hope you understand exactly how great the work is that God has done in your life to take you from hopeless to hope. And those of you who are in the room and you hear what Psalm 14 and 53 say about you, and maybe you agree wholeheartedly and you say, I am too far gone. There is no hope for me. I've done too much. I've said too much. You don't know my history. All I'll tell you is God can handle hopeless. He can take hopeless and the Spirit of God can work in your life in such a way that it becomes hope. So I want to pray for you. You bow and let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. And uh, Again, as we look at these words that are found in the Bible over and over again, we pray that we would listen, that we would understand the truth about who we are, that we would appreciate and celebrate the the grace and the salvation that we have in your son. Father, we see David in these Psalms longing for salvation to come from Israel, looking forward to the day where you kept your promises. Father, we believe that you did that when you sent Jesus Christ. When your spirit raised him from the dead, brought him back to life, Father, that was the moment that we found true hope. We want to celebrate that this morning and acknowledge that all of our hope is found in Jesus Christ. Be honored as we sing, as we lift our voices together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand.